haven't uh, met you before. My name is Graham. I'm the vicar of the church, and I'm uh, preaching our sermon this morning, which is on the subject of Advent. Who is coming? Advent. Who is coming? Now, I wonder whether you have been uh, preparing for visitors uh, in this season where we build up towards Christmas. I wonder whether those of you who are parents have been preparing your children for visitors. Perhaps you've been starting to think about hanging stockings on uh, stockings, stockings. What are stockings? Stockings on the on the mantelpiece if you have a mantelpiece, or on a door handle if you only have a door handle. Um, perhaps you've been having those tricky conversations about. Uh, but, but our estate, our tower block, doesn't have a chimney. Uh, and, explain, and getting those special Santa keys that you can put by the back door or explaining that now kind of it's all sorted. And Arthur Christmas has been very helpful for us because we can see the elves darting in around the place. If you're not a parent, all of that may kind of pass you by, but perhaps you've been thinking about who you'll be spending Christmas Day with. Do you have family coming to visit? Do you have friends coming to visit? Uh, do you have that relative who always drinks a bit too much and causes a fuss? Uh, do you have somebody coming to visit you who you'd really rather wasn't coming to visit you and you're trying to get yourself prepared and thinking, have I got the emotional energy to get through the day uh, with all these relatives, the people that uh, I only see once a year and even that seems too often? Uh, or perhaps you're looking forward uh, to having friends and family visiting. Perhaps you're looking forward to all the excitement. What I want to do in the brief time that we have today is help us think about who is coming to us at Christmas time. Not Father Christmas, not uh, Auntie Bethel or any other friends or family, but rather Jesus. Jesus, the one who was born at Christmas, but also Jesus, our judge, ruler, and saviour. And I think that these scriptures in Malachi chapter 3 give us some great pointers and indications as to who we should expect to come to us. So let's pray. Father God, I ask that by your spirit, you would open up our hearts and our minds to hear and receive your word to us today. May we be changed through the renewing of our minds as we meditate upon your words of scripture and as we consider their meaning in our lives. We ask this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Now, please do keep Malachi chapter 3 open. With you, I'd like to refer to a few verses in it. The question that we're considering, as I say, is who is coming? And it's a question that Malachi chapter 3 has to do with. Uh, it's on page 961, if you've closed your Bibles already. Uh, page 961. The question of who is coming is not so much just a sort of objective question about who's coming, it's also how will it be when they arrive? How will I respond? One of my sort of guilty pleasures on a Saturday morning uh, reading the Guardian newspaper on my phone, every week they have a blind date column. And I quite like reading the Guardian blind date column. It's quite fun because you sort of read about these people who go on a, on a blind date and they go to a restaurant or something. But what I find interesting about it is they are all concerned with how did they relate to one another? How did they get on? That's actually what people want to know when they're thinking about who's coming. They want to know, how will it be for me when this person comes, when this person encounters me? How will it be for me? How will I be changed? How will I change? How will they change? How will it be in relation to them? Advent is a season of watching and waiting, not just waiting 
for the celebration of Christmas when we celebrate Jesus' coming among us by his birth as a baby in Bethlehem, but also as we look for his coming among us as ruler and judge. And in that sense, when we think about who Jesus is as he comes to us, there's a big question mark over how it will be for us when Jesus comes at the end of time to be judge and ruler over all things. How will it be for us? How will we respond? How will we be changed? Now, it's interesting to reflect that the one Christian festival that still has purchase on the popular imagination of our nation is the one in which Jesus is most readily perceived as a weak and powerless baby. That tells you something, doesn't it? It's not Easter where Jesus is an atoning sacrifice, the one who conquers sin and death. It's Christmas where he's cute and fluffy in the hay. I don't know if Jesus was fluffy. Maybe the hay was fluffy. Jesus is cute, the hay was fluffy. Um, uh, I've thrown myself at that. But do you see what I mean? That, that's the imagery that we have. Jesus is weak and powerless. Advent, by contrast, Advent is a season which in Christian tradition has always tried to hold these two things together. It is a remembrance of, uh, of God's coming among us in time by the mystery of his incarnation, but it's also a remembrance forward to something which is going to happen at the very end of time when Jesus returns and comes again to judge the living and the dead. And for that reason, Advent uh, has historically in Christian tradition been a season of four Sundays running up to Christmas where we think about our lives. It's a season of penitence, of self-examination, of reflection. Um, Believe it or not, it's a season of fasting. So like you might fast chocolate or alcohol in Lent, Advent is designed for you to fast, be penitent, reflect on your life, and think about what it would be like when Jesus comes again. Traditional themes in Advent are, 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 are judgment, death, heaven, hell, new creation. All seems very far away from the popular imagination of Christmas, doesn't it? But perhaps it's helpful for us to draw upon some of the imagery of Revelation, in which Jesus uh, comes as the one with blazing white hair, dazzling eyes, shining light, and a sword proceeding from his mouth. Perhaps that's a corrective to that fluffy Jesus in the, in the fluffy hay. Um, and the prophetic verses in Malachi that we want to look at today are all to do with Jesus' coming among us, but they have far more to do with Jesus coming as our judge than Jesus the baby. The prophecies of Malachi were issued and recorded around 400 years before the birth of Jesus. And as Angela said as she introduced the reading, it's the very last uh, book of prophetic writings in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, before we get to the New Testament. And there's about a 400-year period where there was uh, silence, if you like, from the prophets, a time of waiting. Now, interestingly, these prophetic writings of Malachi have very little to say about Jesus' birth, but they do have a great deal to say about Jesus' place in the eternal purposes of God. So who is coming? Who are we waiting for? How do these verses in Malachi help us to anticipate and to perceive the coming of God both in history and again at the end of time? Now the first half of the passage gives us an indication of who is coming to us and something of how it will be. And we see three things. That the one who is coming will be um, a messenger and the Lord. That the one who is coming will be a refiner too. And that the one who is coming will be a judge three. So let's look at them each in turn. Firstly, a messenger and the Lord. Look at verse one. 
says this, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Some translation says the Lord of hosts. So who is speaking? This is God, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the prophets, as we have recalled with our Advent candles today. And who will come? Firstly, a messenger, one who will come before the Lord, one who will come before the Lord. And we must bear in mind that from this prophetic point onwards, there was a long period of prophetic silence in Israel. As I said, the Old Testament scriptures conclude with this book, and these verses take on extra significance, for they're the final words of God in the Hebrew scriptures, which promise first a preparatory messenger and then a divine messenger. So first, somebody who comes to prepare the way. Second, the Lord, the one himself, the, the messenger of the covenant. Now, the words about the messenger who prepare the way of the Lord echoes the language of Isaiah 40, verse 3, which talks about one who comes to prepare the way of the Lord before him. And, of course, it's referring to John the Baptist. John the Baptist, who was called by God to point people to Jesus, to say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, to take that great story of the Passover lamb and to reinterpret it to place focus and attention on Jesus who would achieve the great and ultimate Passover. So first the messenger comes, then Malachi 3 verse 1 says, suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come. Suddenly, unexpectedly, in a place no one was looking, at a time no one was looking Perhaps even to uh, a, a guest room, a family room in a house in Bethlehem. Suddenly and unexpectedly, the Lord you, you are seeking will come to his temple. Will come to the temple, the place in which heaven and earth meet, the dwelling place of God. This temple will no longer be built with stones by human hands. This temple will be built by God in the bodies of his people. Don't you know that your bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit? Don't you know that you are the place in which heaven and earth meet, in which God dwells by his Spirit? That's what St. Paul writes later. The messenger comes before, then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. And this is who? The messenger of the covenant, whom you desire. The covenant. Jesus was a messenger of a new covenant made in his blood that is for all people, for all time. And we desire him, we long for him, we yearn for him because he meets all of our ultimate needs, our need to be reconciled to God, our need for forgiveness, our need for hope, for joy, for love, for peace. All of our needs, all of our desires are met in Jesus he is the one who comes. So this is the messenger first and the Lord who comes, Malachi 3 verse 1. Second, who is coming? A refiner. Look at verses 2 to 3. It says this, but who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? Suddenly this 
divine uh, epiphany, this Lord who comes, this messenger of the covenant who comes and appears in his temple, is starting to look less and less like a weak and powerless baby laid in a feeding trough in hay. Who can endure the day of his coming? It sounds terrifying and scary. Who can stand when he appears? He will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Malachi says that when the Lord appears, he will appear as a refiner's fire. Now, this is not a raging fire like a forest fire. It's not like the fires that have been devastating California in recent months. It's not a forest fire which is uh, destructive and indiscriminate. It's a fire with a purpose. A refiner's fire has purpose. A refiner's fire fire is designed to purify and to refine. Precious metals are purified and made more precious by burning them so that as they melt and become liquid, any base or impure element that is contained within them is burnt away and all you are left with is something more precious, more pure. St. Paul, in his letter to uh, the Corinthians, refers to this process happening in our lives and he encourages us to build our lives carefully so that there will be plenty in us that is precious and pure so as to survive the refining process. He says that actually one day all of us will pass through a refining fire before the Lord. This is what he says in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians. He says, by the grace God has given to me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder and someone else is building on it. That's okay, St. Paul says. It's fine. We all have a part to play. But he does say this, each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. He goes on, he says, if anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. You've got to have this image in your mind. He's using the metaphor of a, of a building, a house, something that you've, an object that you've made, and the foundation is Jesus Christ, and, and then we're building our lives upon it. We're building our lives upon that, and, and we're being built by others as well. You know, the, the, the Christian community in which we participate contributes to our building. The pastors, the teachers, uh, they contribute to the building. But you also build in your own lives by the decisions you make about how you use your time, your money, your prayers, how you read, what disciplines you subject yourself to, uh, how you determine in your own life to follow Jesus. We, we build disciplines and habits that form us and shape us and, and become the very people that we are. And we might build using gold, silver, costly stones. We might build using wood, hay, or straw. And St. Paul says, the day will bring what has been built to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames." It's a really interesting mixed image that St. Paul gives us. He's absolutely convinced that if we are built on the foundation that is Jesus Christ, then we will pass through the fire and we will survive. We will escape uh, as passing through the flames. We will be saved because we are built on the foundation that is Jesus Christ. But what we build in our lives could well be burned up 
If you build in your lives using hay and straw and wood, it will be burned up. If you use gold and silver and precious stones, they may be purified and refined, but it will survive and you receive a reward. Each of us has a choice about how we will live our lives. We make choices every day about how we spend our time, our money, how we use our gifts, about our attitude towards other people whether we will keep a short account with God and one another uh, through forgiveness and saying sorry, and whether we'll use our words and our language to encourage and to build up. We make choices all the time. We are building our lives all the time. And Malachi 3 says that when the Lord comes, he will come with a refiner's fire. That which is base and ungodly and impure will be burnt away. That which is pure and precious will survive. It's an interesting idea, it's an interesting image. It's, it, it's slightly terrifying. It has a threat in it, but also a promise. There's a promise in 1 Corinthians 3 that we will pass through the flames and be saved if we build up on the foundation that is Jesus. But there's also an opportunity to build using good things, to build in step with the Spirit. So firstly, uh, the one who is coming will be a messenger and the Lord. Secondly, the one who is coming will be a refiner. Thirdly, the one who is coming is a judge. Look at verse 5. It says this, So I will come to put you on trial. I'll come to put you on trial. The one who comes will be a judge. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice, but do not fear me. The one who comes will put those that he visits on trial. Surely not us. Surely it's not us who will be on trial. It's easy to read those lists of the people subject to judgment and to assume that it doesn't apply to us. Now, perhaps we've never committed any of the acts explicitly described. But the scriptures remind us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Jesus himself reminds us that even to look lustfully at another is a form of adultery. And even to look angrily at another is a form of murder. So what do these activities that are subject to judgment mean for us? Who are the sorcerers, the adulterers, the perjurers? Well, the sorcerers are those who deceive, those who manipulate and trick others into falling under their influence. They may well turn to spiritual powers of evil, but they may simply act sinfully, preying upon the vulnerability of others for their own gain. Have you ever deceived someone? Have you ever manipulated someone, tricked someone? The adulterers are those who break covenant, those who make promises of exclusivity and then turn away, those who say they will do one thing but then do another. They are those for whom their yes may mean yes, but it may also mean no. They are those who tire of faithfulness through time and seek after novelty instead. They are those who are driven by their own urges, their lusts. They are those focused on themselves, on what they get out of things. They are consumers focused on their wants rather than contributors focused on others' needs. Have you ever been unfaithful? Have you ever been unreliable? Have you ever said yes and then acted no? 
The perjurers are those who bend the truth to their own advantage. They are those who tell a story of themselves and their actions, which they know to be untruthful. A story that paints them in a better light than they perhaps deserve. The perjurers are those whose words cannot be trusted. You're not exactly sure what you get with them. Have you ever lied? Have you ever distorted the truth for your own benefit? Have you ever been untrustworthy? And then the rest, those who defraud laborers of uh, their wages, those who oppress the widows and the fatherless, those who deprive the foreigners among you of justice, but do not fear me. One of the most moving occasions of the past couple of weeks for me was um, being at the London Citizens Mayoral Accountability Assembly in Southwark with um, uh, 1,500 uh, members of London citizens' institutions from across London meeting with Sadiq Khan, the Mayor of London, to, um, to celebrate some of the progress made since the Copper Box Assembly two years ago. And one of the testimonies given was by a worker at the London Stadium you know, in the Olympic Park and this November, the London Stadium signed up, finally, to be a London living wage accredited employer, which meant that all of the staff uh, who, who are on the lowest wages experienced a 30% pay rise. And um, one man stood there at the lectern and gave testimony of the difference this made in his life. And with Sadiq Khan, the Mayor of London, uh, sitting, watching, and in front of 1,500 people, he pulled out a piece of A4 paper and held it up and said, this is my first living wage payslip, and it means a 30% pay increase for me and thousands like me. We live in a society and within an economic system which seeks systematically to defraud laborers of their wages, of, of what is fair, of what is just, of what is needed to be able to live and to flourish and to support families and dependents. And we, and we do so, we live within an economy which is structured towards the rich becoming more rich, the powerful becoming more powerful, and colludes with this injustice. We also live in a society in which the weak and the vulnerable are very often marginalised and exploited. And widows and orphans in the Old Testament scriptures is, if you like, code for those who are dependent upon the kindness and compassion of others, those who are weak and cannot fend for themselves, those who are left alone uh, without recourse perhaps to land, to food, to power, to money, to the opportunity to trade. The scriptures challenge us always to think about those in our society who are most marginalised, most exploited, uh, least able to fend for themselves. That's why uh, the Insights of Liberation theology remind us that God has a preferential option for the poor. God loves all people equally, but especially the poor, those who uh, are disadvantaged by the structures of our society. And the foreigners among us, those who flee persecution or poverty in other lands, those asylum seekers and refugees who have fled Syria, Yemen, other parts of the world, seeking sanctuary in, these, in our shores, seeking safe passage, seeking a better life and a home. How do we in our society respond how do we provide them with justice? The God who comes among us 
is a messenger in the Lord. He's one who comes as a refiner with refiner's fire. And he comes as a judge. And during Advent, if we're not a little bit terrified, then we're doing it wrong. We're doing it wrong because God is not satisfied with the way the world is. He's dissatisfied. God has wrath against the structural injustices in our society and the sin in our lives. And he is calling it into judgment. This popular image of a cute baby in fluffy hay, weak and powerless, is exactly where the powers of this world want to keep Jesus. They want to keep Jesus as a newborn baby, sweet and serene, Little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. That's where the principalities and powers of this world want you to keep Jesus at Christmas. But Jesus will not stay there. Because that baby grew to manhood. And that man, Jesus, died and rose again to overcome the powers of sin and death. And he is coming. He's coming by his spirit now into our presence, into our midst, and he's coming again physically at the end of time to judge and rule the earth. Jesus is coming to us as a judge. And let me tell you, friends, this is good news. This is good news for us. It's good news for all the world because this 